This is Love in Public, and I'm your host, Abril Sawarsa Rivera. Welcome back to another episode. I am delighted to introduce today's guest, Coral Santana. Coral is an Afro-Latina storyteller, producer, and activist, born in the Dominican Republic and currently based in Vancouver, Canada. In her work, Coral explores her mixed heritage, specifically how colonialism has shaped her perception of self. She is an avid advocate for gender, sex, and sexuality empowerment, using her platforms to amplify the voices of resistance in her community. Coral is the Strategic Communications and Events Assistant Manager for UBC Arts and Culture District. In this position, she directed and produced the event Artivism, Sex and the Unheard, a two-month-long digital festival focused on creative resistance and body politics. Last but not least, Coral is the host of Diversity Reads, a podcast book club aimed to center diverse storytelling, where she invites authors and UBC students alike to take part in rich conversations that disrupt and deepen our worldviews. Even over Zoom, Coral is the kind of person who brings electricity into the room. She is not only strikingly talented, but also fiercely generous in her commitment to service, community, and collective storytelling. Hi, Coral, how are you? Oh my God, that was so nice. <laughs> I'm doing great, Abril. Thank you so much for having me. Where are you tuning in from today? Um, I am tuning in for the unceded ancestral and traditional territory of the Hunkaminam-speaking Muslim people. It is the place where I currently live, learn, and create. And I will just like to express my gratitude to this land and the people who take care of it. I will also like to acknowledge that our listeners today are going to be coming from all over the world. And I would like to express my thanks for the traditional caretakers of those lands as well. Thank you for that. I think it is important to acknowledge and appreciate the lands that we live and learn on. Something I always want to do with this podcast is to drop into this present moment and recognize the times that we're living in. I get the feeling that we're slipping back into normalcy sometimes, and I'm becoming increasingly hesitant of that word, normal. In a recent interview, you mentioned how you are optimistic to see what we as a collective are able to create with our new normal, how it's a time to better support our communities and those surrounding us. Tell me more about that. I will say I also have a strange relationship with the world, with the word normal, with the world and the world normal nowadays, um, because if this time has taught us anything, is that normalcy is very fragile and it's very much a social construct, as many things are. And I believe the best way to take care of ourselves in these times where our status quo has been so heavily disrupted is connecting with community. It's being able to care for one another. It's being able to listen to one another. It's been able to rest to better serve ourselves and by that, serve others. I think 
times like this have highlighted how much we rely on creative power. It's brought to attention how much we find comfort in books and movies and TV shows and music and poetry. Is there anything that's bringing you comfort now in terms of the art that you're consuming? Well, I've been reading a lot, which I tend to do, but I've been reading more purposefully, if that makes sense. I am the sort of person that stress reads. So the same way that someone can binge a whole series, I can read five books in four days. Uh, and just like that is the sole thing I will focus on because that brings me kind of that, that much needed rush of comfort. But at the same time, I've been trying to read more purposefully to digest the words that I'm consuming to be more mindful of whose words I'm reading and whose words I'm digesting. Who am I letting influence my mind for that whole day? Because I am a completely different person depending on which book I'm reading. <laughs> um, as well, painting. It's something that I used to do when I was very, very young. And I one day during this whole year I went to Michael's bought myself a few canvases bought myself a, like the cheapest kit of acrylics and brushes and just start painting while watching like Disney princess movies ultimate comfort I highly recommend and also seeing my bubble being able to provide for them I am a stress feeder so when I am very stressed I like to feed others <laughs> So, especially in the beginning of this quarantine, my friends were getting brownies, like, weekly. <laughs> the best kind of friend to be. Yeah. <laughs> Coral, what I love about your work is that it thrives at the intersections of art and activism. There is this quote by the theater maker Brecht that is always stuck with me, and that is that art is not a mirror held up to reality, but a hammer with which to shape it. To me, your work embodies that art that unapologetically takes a stand. I wonder, when did you first discover the interconnectedness between art and activism? Can you think back to one of the first times that you intentionally used your art to propel change? For me, art and activism have always been intertwined. It's the reason why I ended up choosing my degree, film studies. I found myself being shaped and being reflective of, of, uh, of the media I was consuming. And I was like, I want to understand more. And uh, I think the first time I did it purposely, because as I said, I feel like it's always been infused in how I view art and how I view activism, but it became more purposeful once I started university. And one of the moments that I think was more, more the most visible and the most purposeful at the time was during my first year of college, I was part of the Vagina Monologues. And that was, first of all, an incredible experience. I worked with an amazing group of women that just brought so much joy every time I had to go to rehearsal. Our rehearsals were both a combination of, our pra of us practicing our lines and workshops and talks to understand ourselves, understand our femininity, understand our relationship with femininity with the patriarchy, with masculinity, because we're all bundles of all these elements. Like 
nobody's exclusively one thing and nobody exists in this world outside of these terms. Most importantly, we don't exist outside of these terms because these are the terms we've given. This is the language that we've given this meaning. But yeah, when I was part of the vagina monologues, I think it was the first time that I was very purposeful of using art, theater, poetry, the the piece that I was doing with duetting, I guess. It was a poem called My Short Skirt, I believe. <laughs> and we as well integrated to that presentation an indigenous song. One of our the members of our cast was an indigenous woman. Uh, Tanen Lee, um, the loveliest human, just a wonderful person all around. And she introduced a morning song to the beginning of the presentation. And we also included the song Quiet by Milk. <laughs> Sorry, it took me a second to remember. And in, in the song, she talks about, about, about how she can't keep quiet because there's a community of women and non-men that are here and they've experienced so much that is just ignored, just brushed under the rug. And we can't keep quiet anymore because we need these stories to be out there. We need them to be relevant. And sometimes when I think back of projects that I've done and the meanings behind those projects, I get a little bit nostalgic in the sense that I am still fighting the same fight. It's evolved, obviously. My language and my understanding has grown a lot since my first year of university. But I think of the song Quiet, and I think of Sarah, the British woman who disappeared about a week ago. And no, no, it was not a week ago. It was longer than that. But her body was found. And the last text exchange was, please text me when you get home. And I'm like, that is that is a battle that I'm still fighting and I will fight until there's no reason for me to fight it anymore. Gosh, you just gave me goosebumps and <laughs> so many of the things you've just said resonate with me deeply. I want to continue to dive into this theme of art, activism, femininity. Serendipitously enough, you recently produced an event called Artivism, Sex and the Unheard. How did you marry the ideas of sexuality and social justice? I'm curious to hear about the story behind it. Of course. So Artivism, this was its third rendition. The festival was originated by Angelica, a wonderful poem, uh, a wonderful poet um, that graduated from UBC last year. Uh, they used to hold my position, uh, UBC Arts and Culture District. And this year... Um, I wanted to give it in a specific theme, not only because it is a, uh, a topic that I believe is incredibly relevant, um, but also because of technicalities of keeping the programming cohesive throughout if we were going to stand an originally 10-day festival to a two-month-long festival. And Sex and the Unheard, it is about sex, it is about sexuality, it is about gender identity, and it is about ownership of body. And I think that's where activism comes in. Because sex, sexuality, gender identity can all come together in the idea of ownership of body. 
I own my body. I own how I uh, present it. I own how I share it. And like, it is my vessel to utilize how I deem appropriate. And then the unheard was a term that I decided to use to highlight both how loud and how muted these voices are at the same time. Because it's not that they're not there, they're just unheard. Um, and in the program, we in the programming, we try to highlight voices of people of color. We try to highlight voices of people with disabilities. We try to highlight voices of people from uh, basically religious backgrounds or minority religions backgrounds. Um, and it is a way to bring in all of these intersectionalities um, and highlight the idea that our experiences are not linear. They're not, they're not just one thing that affects how we view the, wor the world and how the world views us. And as I said, the idea of ownership of body will vary from person to person depending on all of these intersectionalities. And I wanted to create a space while people found their comfort community, their comfort level. We had workshops with uh, UBC Slam Poetry on how to express your sexuality to poetry. But we also had talks that talked about race and kink and how kink can be a tool to heal from trauma. And we talked about like sex work and disability and how people with disabilities have been used in the sex work industry, both willingly and unwillingly. And in both scenarios, they're seen as the bad ones. So when do we have authority? When do we have where are, when are we empowered enough to be ourselves, you know, in a world that is just like trying to fit us in a box? And I think that art is one of the most important tools to propel these messages. Um, I think I said in an interview once that history is saved as art. It's saved on books, it's saved on paintings, it's saved on pictures, on videos. So it is important that we create art to talk about these issues because this art is history. This art is what's gonna keep this narrative going forward once we're gone. Hmm, art is artifact. Yeah, art is artifact, art is memory. It's living memory. Like I think the simplest way to say it is art is revolution. Art ignites revolution, art captures revolution, art fuels revolution. You mentioned how one of your aims with the festival was to explore how sexuality is intertwined with people's identities rather than something that is entirely separate. I think that you're right. We do have this rather black and white way of seeing. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I completely agree. We do have as a general, a very black and white understanding of how sexuality works. And that is the furthest thing from reality. A non-binary person is going to interact with sexuality very different than from a cisgender person, or they're going to interact with sexuality very different than even a non-binary elder compared to a non-binary youth. There's multiple factors that come together in our understanding of 
our own sexuality and, sexu and sexuality as a whole from how we were raised, the community that we engaged with, um, the, our race, our gender, our age. And I wanted to bring all these things together so we can explore both our similarities and our differences and understand that it is okay to have them. It's not like identity is not linear, none of our identities. So why should sexuality be? Is there anything that you learned about yourself personally as you were undertaking the production of this festival and thinking back to your upbringing in the Dominican Republic, the taboo surrounding sexuality in Latin America as a whole? I think it's one of the reasons why I chose the topic. Um, why is something so natural, so hidden? And to look at like recent art, Bridgerton, like, like Daphne's mother. I know it's not reflecting recent history, but it is recent media. And we see Daphne's mother, like, not tell Daphne, like, anything about sexuality or reproduction. Sex is supposed to be this thing that you just naturally know about and naturally know how to do. And, like, the reality is that you don't. Like, for example... I was way too old when I learned what the clitoris looked like. The whole thing. I was way too old. <laughs> that should be like sex ed classes in high school. Also, I was way too old when I learned that losing your virginity is not meant to hurt. It is just a sign that you were not aroused enough. It is not meant to hurt. It's meant to pinch because it is a muscle that you haven't used. But it's not meant to be bleeding for days. And these are taboos and stories that people tell uh, young women, young girls, um, to keep them at bay and keep them from being sluts and keep them from being coarse. All these words that are thrown around just to shame us for having a body. Um, and it's, it's information that I think should be more broadly accessible, honestly. Because as I said, I was just way too old when I learned a lot about how my body functions. And yeah, I think providing a platform for these topics to be brought to light, it's very important because it is important for us to have a healthy relationship with our body and a healthy relationship with all the ongoings of our body. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Christiana Manpour's show, Sex and Love Around the World, if you've seen it. No, that sounds fascinating. <laughs> you should watch it. She is such a talented interviewer and producer. I can't shut up about this show, but I think that you would really like it. I'm going to write it down. A lot of the themes that you touch upon when it comes to artivism, sex, and the unheard, I think, are connected to the themes that she speaks about on the show. Coral, you have a personal history in the performing arts. Today, you identify as both a storyteller and producer. When did you make the conscious choice to shift from telling your own stories to amplifying those of others? And what are some of the pieces of advice that you wish you could have told yourself when you first stepped into your role as producer? Oh, God. Um, I think the first step on that shift for me personally, was going from seeing myself as a writer to going to see myself as a storyteller. 
because although I love writing, I'm doing a creative writing minor and I do, I will love to do screenwriting in the future, professionally, I should say. Writing is not the only medium in which I have consumed stories and it's not the only medium in which I have enjoyed stories. And then I realized that what I loved about writing, why I considered myself a writer up until a certain point, and I guess I still am, but it does not encompass everything I am. It's stories. Stories is what I love about writing. Understanding the world around me, understanding people, getting to know places, getting to know histories. And I think it was in one of my creative writing classes, actually, in first term of university. We had an open mic at the end of the term and people started sharing their stories. And I loved that idea, that idea of creating a platform for people to share stories and for people to bring their own narrative into my inner world and into the inner world of those around me. And since then, I've been trying to share stories, not just mine, but others, and also bring others to share their own stories. Because I think that's a very important part of storytelling, understanding when it's your turn to be a listener and not the storyteller. Which is definitely something that I stumbled upon because I'm like, this is a great story, I have to tell it, but it's not my place. And I still struggle with it. It's something I am constantly working on, understanding which stories are mine to tell and which stories are mine to lift and share. Like, for example, in my podcast, Diversity Reads, I try to be very conscious of the guests that I bring in to discuss certain books. Because certain elements of certain books are just going to be better understood and better explored by certain people that share similarities to either the author or the narrative. I do think we all can enjoy and we all can analyze a story, but we don't all have the elements and the tools to truly understand how that's, that story is not just a story, but it's a world that is existing. I love what you've said about understanding when it's your turn to be the listener and when it's your turn to be the storyteller. I feel like that is what I hope that this podcast can gesture towards. You mentioned your new podcast, Diversity Reads, and I definitely want to make time to talk about that. This is a podcast book club that celebrates authors who disrupt and deepen our worldviews. Disrupt and deepen. When I heard that, I remember thinking... I want to hear more about that. For you to be able to disrupt, there has to be a structure that you're fighting against. And I think a lot of us, by existing in a white world as BIPOC, as women, um, and as any other intersections that we might bring into this world, we are disrupting. So by bringing all of these narratives some that I've read in the past, some that I've never been introduced to until the moment that I'm reading it for the, for the podcast. I want to show the world that exists within those people, within the diverse authors, within people whose stories a decade ago wouldn't have the same amount of opportunities they have now, the same amount of limelight they have now. To disrupt is to challenge. And with this podcast, I try to challenge our compulsion to only read certain stories, to only interact with certain stories. Um, and 
my purpose for the podcast is that to bring in new narratives to different folks. Um, also, I am very purposeful on the fact that I we only review fiction and poetry, so non nonfiction work. Because although I think nonfiction work is incredibly important and should be digested by everyone, especially uh, BIPOC nonfiction, because it introduces uh, the different communities to the true lived experiences. I think there's some respect to be given to fiction and poetry. Because fiction shows, fiction fantasy shows a whole world that exists within a person. It's not just their external lived experiences, but it's also the world they've created for themselves and they want to share it with you. Um, and I'm also a fiction lover, so that there's definitely that bias there. But most importantly, I wanted to highlight fiction because we can see ourselves in these worlds that have been created where we can break the boundaries of our current existence where we can toy around <clears throat> sorry when we can toy around with all the boundaries and as minority folks we can exist with less blockages or we can explore those blockages that are currently present in our reality by twisting them and be turning them metaphorical. I think there's so much value in reading fiction by diverse authors because a lot of the fiction that we enjoy only introduces white characters and white stories. So why not see ourselves in fiction narratives? Gosh, it feels like there are a million things that I want to talk to you about today. I do want to delve into your cultural identity. You are Afro-Latina and spent your childhood in the Dominican Republic. In some of your work, you've spoken about this racialized hierarchy in Latin America. You even gesture to your own experiences growing up, how there were terms like blanquita and trigueña used to describe your status as a mixed-race individual. What was that like? Yeah, no, I... So I... I was born and raised in the Dominican Republic. I moved to Canada when I was 18 to start university. And it was quite a cultural shock um, in a way that I did not expect it. So as I mentioned in my essay, Mixed Feelings, I have always interacted with the world as a light-skinned person. And especially in the Dominican Republic, that is very important to how the world interacts with you or in, in my lived experiences in the Dominican Republic, it's very, very obvious how I exist in the world as a light-skinned person. And so many of the privileges that I did not notice until I moved to Canada for being a light-skinned Dominican in the Dominican Republic. There was the idea that I was just white enough. I mean, I, I have white somewhere in me. I could not tell you because my lineage has been mixed and mixed and mixed. And the people I see in my life are predominantly darker than I am. And these terms that in one term or another mean you're white enough, but you're not white. Keep that in mind. 
when I first started transitioning my hair, it wasn't a gap year that I took from high school to university. Why a gap year? I wouldn't have been allowed to go to school with my hair in its transition period. And even my mom will tell me, like, you need to go to the salon. Like, what are you doing with that grain in your head? What are you doing with that just frizzy, unruly hair that it's like, doesn't know what it's doing? And I'm like, I've beat it up so much. I need to read Tisha that it can be safe just existing. And like my grandma used to always make fun of my nose because it's on the larger size. She will like pinch my nose trying to like squeeze it thinner, uh, thinner. And at the time, like it, I didn't necessarily realize it was wrong. It was just how I was. It was just the environment I grew up in to the point where like I always dreamed of a nose job. Like, just, I want to get that perfect skinny nose with the little pointy end that goes slightly up. And just, you know, family being like, don't spend too much time outside, you're going to get dark. Or just so many subtleties that I could pass along because I was just white enough. And then I came to Canada... And I was not white at all. <laughs> um, I'm still very light-skinned, but now suddenly I am not white at all. And that was very much a disruption of my perception of self. Because now I need to understand what am I in this new space that I'm in. And it, I was surprised at first how easily people said, you're Black. Because that was not something that I was called back home. Like negrita, which is usually the term of endearment, depending who it comes from, um, for darker skinned people. But then as I start noticing what they saw, so I start noticing my hair, my face, my poise, my culture, how when I go to shoppers, I get followed by the security guard, how I've had people move seats in the bus, I start to understand. I understand the North American black and I understand why I fit within the North American black. And now I go back home and they expect me to be white enough, not white, but white enough. And I refuse to fit in that again. I refuse to be white enough for the benefit of others. I refuse to go to the hair salon to straighten my hair because they want me to have to be more white passing. I refuse to dis to want a nose job because they want me to look more perfilada. I don't even know how to say that in English. Um, just to have like basically a wider profile. I refuse to be less of who I am to become more of what they want me to be. And it is a very interesting conundrum, like going back and forth between the two spaces and trying to retain some identity because I go back home and I'm expected to be just white enough but I'm introduced with all these African flavors and I'm introduced to these African rhythms and I'm introduced to this warmth that a lot of people say can only be found in like tropical countries <laughs> and like not just warmth of, of like I'm sweating and it's 35 degrees outside but warmth of people smiling people laughing people being loud it's one of the things that kind of disturbs me the most about being in North America is how quiet the world is. And I'm not, I don't mean rowdy, like I'm at a club. What? No. 
it's it's just it's loud in the sense that I laugh with like my head thrown back and just tears in my eyes or that my friends and I are in restaurants and like our hands look like we're about to throw hands but our words are just gossip and when I come to white space I don't see that so I know that I'm not white enough anymore because I was shown I was black and brown. The brown part, indigenous side, was also kind of a surprise to me because back home and um, just like the school literature, all we we're taught about indigenous people in the Dominican Republic is that they were there and they all died. So we're not taught about our indigenous heritage a lot. We're not taught about the words that still exist within our language that come from indigenous words. like. And words that have traveled the world, like hammock, avocado, those words come from from Taino language, from Arawak. And these are things that I found out after I exited the bubble that is the Dominican Republic. And it's both sad but enlightening. Because I don't want to be permanently trapped in a bubble. But at the same time, it's so sad to see how much you didn't know of the place that has been your everything for me the first 18 years of my life. And it will be my everything until the day I die. Coral, like you, as a mixed-race individual myself, I've always found myself navigating spaces acutely aware of my hybridity, which in turn has made me such a careful observer of exclusion and perceived difference. And as a kid, I definitely noticed that, that sense of exclusion on my television screen. When I read the article that you wrote for the UBC, I almost felt like you'd taken the words right out of my mouth. You put it so well. In TV and film, I did not see people that looked like me. However, I saw fractions of myself spread amongst them, but I was not allowed to look at the features that resembled mine. There's no denying it, representation matters. I vividly remember when I first saw someone on my TV screen who looked like me. Did you have a similar moment, maybe it was a cartoon or a TV show where you saw a reflection of yourself on screen? The first time I saw someone that felt correct to identify with was actually on Instagram. She's a Brazilian influencer and she is light-skinned, beautiful, black features and a beautiful red afro. Before that, uh, yeah, uh, as I said in the article, before that I just like, kind of pieced myself together. Like, I remember saying that my favorite Disney princess was Belle because she was the only brunette one. <laughs> um, that doesn't mean that her story was the one that particularly connected the most with me. She just happened to be the only brunette one with brown eyes. And I was brunette and I have brown eyes, so Belle. Even, like, in Latin American content, we see like very specific figures being highlighted. We see the tall, beautiful blondes with blue eyes. Or we see like the luptious um, brunette with the endless lashes and the darkest of eyes. And they both have a very specific role. Like the blonde one is usually the villain, um, but she's the beautiful, cold, poised villain. And we have also the spicy Latina um, 
that is there to rock your world. And I was like, I'm neither. <laughs> um, I am not a spicy Latina. I am not a cold blonde villain. And then in American content, which is most of the foreign content that I was exposed to when I was back home, I also didn't really see myself. I saw the maids. I saw the kid with a thick accent. And all of them were fragments of me and not. And I saw like the possibilities that were drawn for me as a mixed race Latina. I didn't want to be anybody's maid. I didn't want to be the joke. I didn't want to be the spicy Latina. I didn't want to be the cold villain. But those were the, that was the media was consuming that was telling me these are your options. And I was like, no, why can't I have their options? Why can't I have the option of the movie star? Why can't I have the option of the Cinderella? Why can't I have the option of the one that fought for something that mattered? And to this day, I think we as mixed race individuals, different, but still somewhat similar, deserve a lot better representation because usually mixed race individuals are used for their proximity to whiteness and not for their complex identity. And some individuals don't have any white in their mixed <laughs> heritage. so. Are what are you saying, media? Are you telling me they have no role in your product? You're touching upon a lot of the strides that we still have to make when it comes to representation in TV and film. I would love to hear your take on this phrase, performative diversity, and what that means to you. The best description that I've heard for the diversity and inclusion movement is that it was first called integration. It talks about the fact that diversity and inclusion usually means adapting people of color for white spaces rather than making these white spaces all-inclusive spaces. And that is the root of performative activism and performative diversity. It's just having token people of color to brag about on social media. It's making one black square on your Instagram and doing nothing about the issues that black square is meant to represent. It's defending fearlessly people on social media and then your friend who's right beside you not doing anything about them when something happens to them next to you. I think activism and understanding of what true diversity, inclusion, and equity will look like, it is an ever-evolving process. And it is unfair to expect everyone to be up to date on what that process look like looks like at that very exact moment. But I think it is fair to expect people to be constantly learning on how to do it better. And I feel like a lot of organizations, corporations are not doing their best job. Especially, I want to say, when all of these movements like just hyper-arise back in May, June with the BLM movement and recently with um, Asian Lives Matter is that I actually think that is a perfect example of understanding kind of how performative diversity can be is all of these people that are very selective on who they are defending. I think the best phrase is like 
we cannot move forward unless everybody comes forward. We cannot expect to be preaching for Black Lives Matter if we're not including Black trans lives, if we're not including Black children, if we're not including Black indigenous people. And a lot of people that you saw, a lot of organizations that like highlighted BLM when it was all over the news, all over the world, barely said anything about the Asian Lives Matter movement that is happening currently, or that is being ignited currently, because it did not start now. Yeah, performative diversity is just there to look pretty. It's not doing anything. I think that's a really good way of summing it up. Coral, I remember that one of the first thoughts that ran through my mind when I heard about you and your work was, this girl is nonstop. <laughs> you are such a trailblazer. It feels that you always have a new initiative in the works. With the service-oriented work that you do, you strike me as someone who is incredibly purpose-driven. I'm curious, is there an overarching intention that guides what you do and how you move through the world, especially with the kinds of projects that you take on? I think my major purpose is lifting others up with me. That is what I aspire to achieve with all of this work. With Diversity Reads, I aspire to lift up not only the authors that I'm highlighting, but also the guests who are also doing amazing work and have incredibly interesting, detailed, and specific thoughts and opinions about the works that we're discussing. I also have a project um, coming up soon. Uh, at the end of the month, there's going to be a film festival by UBC Arts and Culture District called Globalized Film Festival, The Construction of Woman. We're going to be screening four different films, two Indigenous Canadian films, one Argentinian film, one Japanese film. And it's all about the construction of gender and f gender roles and societal expectations in different cultures. And all of these films are going to be accompanied by a talk or a panel or a discussion in order to explore the different themes that the film brought up, but also the larger themes of the different societies. And I truly believe that one of the ways to lift people up is through education and through exposure. It's through sharing your knowledge and sharing the resources that you've been given. That's why I say like um, activism is definitely a community driven work. Yes, there's singular activists all over the place, but we don't do our works by ourselves. We don't do our work solely for ourselves either. It is a community driven work. And yeah, no, I think my major purpose is bringing other people up with me in whatever means I deem possible and feasible at the moment through art, through education, which I think usually interconnect through providing a platform. Wow, that's beautiful. I have one last question for you, and I think you've given me the perfect segue. The title for this podcast pays homage to a quote by Cornell West. He reminds us that justice is just what love looks like in public. I like to close off every episode by asking guests what that means to them. What does love in public look like to you? Love in 
public looks like listening, looks like understanding, looks like paying attention. As a community, to understand the different variables in our struggles, we must pay attention. And once we pay attention to the struggles of others and empathize, we're able to care for them. We're able to love. So yeah, love in public is paying attention. Love in public is paying attention. Mm. Coral, I want to thank you so much for making the time and for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was absolutely lovely. And you are an amazing host. You make me feel so comfortable and so willing to share with you. So thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad. To all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. I'm Abril Soarso Rivera, and this has been Love in Public. This podcast was brought to you by the Equity and Inclusion Office at the University of British Columbia. It was produced by Moses Caliboso. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Ben Robinson.